The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. Alles klar? Can you hear me in the back? More. Sí. <laughs> Okay. <clears throat> so again, thank you, Common Ground, for inviting me to come here on that beautiful day, and also for you guys coming here and not being somewhere out uh, for dinner or running or other activities in the sun, because you, I think you don't have so many days of sunshine here. I was a few weeks ago, and I think there was below 20 degrees, so... Okay, so welcome. <clears throat> so, so good evening, my dear friends in old age, disease, and death. That's quite a welcoming. But a teacher of mine in uh, Thailand, uh, Achyam Buddha Dasa, that's how he opened his uh, Dharma talks. So, so all beings who have taken birth in a body uh, and this body will eventually pass away. It's just a fact. So in the Buddhist tradition also, as a Buddha, as he grew up and uh, living in his palace, palace for about, you know, 29 years, as it says, and then uh, one day he was riding out with his charioteer, and then he saw a old person. Okay, I have to see, say before, when he grew up, when he was born, the Buddha, the soothsayers and, and, horrors and ast- astrologers said, Buddha, either he will be a great warrior or he will be a founder of a religion. And since his father came from a warrior class, of course he wanted to be his son, a great warrior. So when he was living in the palace, everything was beautiful so that he wouldn't come and so that he wouldn't have any bad ideas. No, Everything, maybe in my generation, he would say sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Okay. Is that all recorded? Okay. Anyway, so as it happens, uh, one day he was riding out with his chariot and he saw a uh, old person. So he asked his chariot, what is this? Well, that's an old person. And eventually, we also become old. The second time he was going out, he saw like a, a sick person, lepra person. And he said, what's that? Well, that's a sick person. Eventually, you know, we also get sick. And the third time he was riding out, he saw a, a dead person carrying a corpse. What is this? Well, that's a dead person, and eventually we also will die. And the fourth time he was riding out, he saw a sadhu or a renunciate, renouncing this worldly life in order to look for for liberation. And so the uh, Siddhartha, Gautama, the Buddha to be reflected, what is the nature of birth and death? What is the force behind it? How can suffering brought to an end? And after his enlightenment, at one time he was, he went with his monks to the forest, they went in the forest, he reached down, he grabbed a handful of leaves and said to his monks, monks, what do you think is more leaves? In my hand or on the floor of this forest? And the monk said, well, venerable sir, there will more leaves, you know, of course, on the ground of the forest. And then he opened his hand and his few leaves fluttering down and he said, that's all I'm teaching. Suffering and the end of suffering. 
and all my knowledge I know about the, uh, the, uh, the existence of the universe and all this stuff, you know, this I know, but I'm not teaching. Suffering and the end of suffering. And actually, sometimes it's it's a it's a good to have a taste of suffering in order to get out of suffering. So, in the Four Noble Truths, the teaching of the Buddha, Four Noble Truths, the first truth is the pain of old age, disease, and death. And so, mostly, actually, we are aware of the body only when it hurts, isn't it? So, growing up body still feels good somehow, and you know, there are few diseases here and there, but the body heals easily, and until we hit old age. So old age sort of like, it slowly wiggles its way in, and on a day-to-day basis, actually, you don't see it actually that this, that this body is growing old. Like for instance, where I live in India, so once a year I go to India, in the fall, and usually some people, they stay all year long in India, the whole year. And sometimes I come back next year and I see the same person and I look and I say, wow, they really aged. And there's one uh, I just found. It's actually it's from the German. Uh, it's called Mitten aus dem Leben, from the core of life something. So I'm going to translate that. So maybe the translation might be not so, you know, proper, but I hope maybe you get the idea of it. And it says... My name is Sylvia, and uh, the other day I was in a waiting room and waiting for my first appointment with a new dentist. And on the wall there hung his diploma, and which is name. And suddenly I remembered that when I was in high school, there was this really this good-looking, tall, dark-haired young man. At uh, this particular school, at what uh, I think she said, like the uh, Albert Einstein School, and it was like 35 years ago. Could it be that this uh, young man, you know, from uh, I, I was really interested at him, you know, like 35 years ago. Could it be that this is now this dentist? So, but when I saw him, I totally, I totally, you know, let let go of that thought. Because there was an old guy standing there, and he had like gray hair, and already, you know, the hair is sort of like, you know, leaving deep, uh, sort of like uh, wrinkles in his face, and he was way too old that to be my uh, my comrade in school. But after he cleaned all my teeth, checked through or so, I asked him whether he went to this Albert Einstein school, and he said, yes, yes, I was there. And then I asked, when, when did you make your, uh, when, when did you graduate? And he said, uh, 1975. Why you ask? And then my uh, answer was, you were in my class. And he looked very, you know, a little bit disturbed. And then this old Awful looking, boldly gray hair, you know, and so forth. So there's some words I don't want to really translate. Uh, old man asked me, what subject did you teach? So, anyway. 
So that's happened. Sometimes you see somebody, right, in your relationship, maybe, or in your life, you saw him maybe 20 years ago, you look at him, wow. But, you know, looking at yourself, it might be the same way. The other day, or actually, this last year, I was in Germany, going around train stations, or an old German train station. You still have to carry your luggage downstairs, and you have to go to another platform, and you go up. So I'm, you know, big suitcase, 50 pounds, another carry-on, my backpack. So I was going down, one, and then I thought, wow, okay, that's about like 20, 30 steps. And I was just pondering what to do. As a young Japanese girl came and said, can I help you? <laughs> and I'm like, wow, okay. Anyway, so just to uh, see that. And uh, aging is a big issue in our country, of course. It's a billion-dollar industry. And... Uh, Advertising, right? Continuously. You need that, you want that. And uh, so it's actually feeding on greed, right? Advertising generally, not only health, you know, generally. Feeding on greed. Because, uh, meaning, the main thing is, you need anything what is better at the present moment. Because our society doesn't want to have happy people. Because happy people won't consume anymore. They're happy with what they have. So then our society, of course has to, you know, keep you going. To have one uh, happy moment, one new gadget, one new iPhone or whatever it is, you know, one after the other, one after the other, in order, you know, to make you happy. So all humans want to grow old, but nobody wants to be old. And hiding the body aging, uh, hiding the body, the body's year, you know, of aging, it's like telling the trees in the fall not to turn the colors, isn't it? And we look in the, we look in the mirror, more wrinkles, gray hair, no hair, etc. But we don't feel old, right? You look, the, and so we see because it's our body which grows old, but not who we are. You can't feel like forty, fifty, sixty, seventy or so. It's a concept. Right? So next time you look in the mirror, you know, not seeing just, okay, it's just this body, you know, kind of like growing old, which is, you know, in its nature, right? But really who you are, you know, it's not growing old. Because growing old is that when you stop growing, then you become old. Let's see that. So how many of us are satisfied with the way we look or the way with our body? So the question, what's your relationship to your body? Meaning, do you like it? Are you indifferent? Or you don't like it? Check it out. Just reflect for a moment. Do you like your body? Or, or you don't like it? How is your reaction if your body doesn't behave as you like it? Meaning, if you get a cold, for instance... How is your reaction to that body? If you're getting a cold or whatever, pain, aches. How you experience your body in public, the public surrounding. Do you have the feeling to be relaxed, calm, move naturally, or are you very body conscious? When you move, let's say you move in a restaurant or whatever, you know, where there are people. Are you showing off with your body? 
Or do you want to b- become invisible, not to attract people's attention to you, to your not-so-loved body? Do you, ne- do you ne- uh, neglect your body and thus show your disapproval and contempt for your body? Either way, approval or disapproval shows a distorted relationship with your body. So it's really kind of like to check it out once in a while when you are, you know, when you're in a public surrounding. Showing off. Invisible, always in the last row. And how your relationship is then with your body. And maybe we, maybe we feel through the way we grew up a deep-seated insecurity and dislike with our bodies. Because it didn't look the way society tells us. You know, nowadays, MTV, you, you know, you know, how we should look. Yoga journal, you look on the cover of yoga journal. But, but see that there is, you know, how many hours of photoshops are there involved, right? Or you look man's health, you know. Wow. So, don't be blended by this uh, advertising. But especially also as teenagers, you know, maybe you have children, you know, who are that age, or yourself as teenagers, we all know very well uh, how we are very body conscious. You know, the hair has to be particular, you know, right, or not too short, not too tall, too thin, too fat, and so forth. Because I remember when I grew up, I was pretty, you know, thin, right? So people called me Biafra. It was a time, you know, when they uh, were doing in Africa, you know, when there was this hunger. So, yeah. So, you know, you get sort of like framed. Alice Miller talks about... I have it somewhere here. She said... The pains of our past can, cannot be released until we touch them with healing and forgiveness. Pain of our past cannot be released until we touch them with healing and forgiveness. She said, the truth about our childhood is stored up in our body. And although we can repress it, we never can alter it. Our intellect can be deceived, our feelings manipulated, our conceptions confused, and our body tricked with medication. But someday... Our body will present its bill, for it is as incorruptible as a child who, still whole in spirit, will accept no compromise or excuses, and it will not, and it will not stop tormenting us until we stop evading the truth. So, and this deep insecurity or disliking with or in our body can lead to problems in touching and being touched. By other people, means not being able to be intimate. And it says actually that touch is ten times more potent than, uh, let's say, verbal or emotional contact. Let's say hands lift us out of the womb, you know, guide us through the body, uh, through our life, and at the end of life, you know, pull us into the grave. Close your eyes. There was once I, I there was. The Academy Award, you know, in uh, L.A., many, many years ago. And there was also Catherine Deneuve. She's like a, a French actress, so she got a 
award for lifetime, you know, lifetime award, something so. You know, and she was in her 60s, you know, good looking, so they asked, you know, okay, you know, what's the secret about, you know, your uh, kind of like about aging? And about aging, let's say, French or European women and sort of like uh, American women. And, she, and then she thought for a while. And then she said, I think uh, <clears throat> I think French or European women, they can age more with grace. And, you know, like here, it's like, you see on TV, like a 17-year-old girl gets for her uh, birthday, gets sort of like some uh, whatever, some uh, surgery present. It's a present, some sort of 17 year old girl, you know. So, kind of like for whatever, you know, doing something on her body. About old age, Ram Das was writing a book about old age. Actually, while he was writing the book, he had that stroke. And so, one story is, which I like, there's an elderly man going down the streets in New York. And he was walking, and then suddenly he hears. Okay, so he stopped, looked around, couldn't see anything. Then he, then he was about to keep on walking. Again, he hears, pss, pss. oh, there's a frog. He looked down, there was a frog, and the frog said, yeah, it's me. And he said, wow. And then the frog said, well, you know, actually, I'm a princess. And if you kiss me, I will turn again into a princess, and I will be with a until the rest of your life and fulfill all your wishes. Okay, so then uh, he thinks for some time. Okay, then he grabs the frog and puts it in his coat pocket and walks on. And then the frog said after some time, hey, hey, you forgot, you have to kiss me. And then he said, well, at my age, a talking frog is more important than a beautiful woman. <laughs> Something like that. So, old age. Old age. I can, you know, we can good, good go on old age. So, next one. Disease. We have to die of something. Right? And the, bo- the body doesn't stay healthy forever, no matter how hard we try to stay healthy. Eat the right food, vitamins, workout, running, qigong, meditate, yoga, we all, whatever. We get this, uh, we got sick at one point. It's like, for me, sometimes like this body is like a rental car. So you came on that planet Earth, right? You signed up. Okay, what you got? Okay, you got a truck or you got a sports car or a SUV or whatever, right? And you drive through life, you know, and you have to fix it once in a while, right? So you have to change some tires, okay? Maybe you put some big tires on, right? You know, when you go to the gym, right? Some big tires or whatever. And sometimes even nowadays you can change some parts of the engine, you know, your heart or a, a liver or a kidney or whatever. But at the end, you know, you have to give it back. And so and some people actually take better care of their car than of their body. I know some people like that. Or as uh, Mark Twain said, be careful about reading health books. You may die of misprint. So watch out. So disease. Next one, death. What is the cause of death? Birth. Birth. Okay, very simple. But when there's birth, there's death. That's a fact. What comes into existence will disintegrate. 
Buddha, you know, we all, phenomenas arise and pass away. That's just the nature of it. Yes, we don't know when, we don't know where, and we don't know how. What comes, well, there's a Tibetan saying, what comes next, tomorrow or next life, we don't know. No escape. There's one story, a Sufi story. There's one man, he's in a bazaar, somewhere in, a, in the town, and then he saw death. And death looked quite astonished. Oh, and he thought, wow, he's coming to take me away. And he went back and on his horse and was riding day and night, day and now, day and night until he, until he reached another town. And then he went again to the bazaar. And again he saw death. And this time death said, Jello, let's go. And then he said to death, how come, you know, a few days ago we saw each other in that town. Why you didn't take me then and why did you look so surprised? And death said, I know. We had an appointment here today, and I was wondering how fast you can make it to come here. So really don't know when, where, and how. And sometimes it looks like it happens only to others. And when death is approaching, would you wish to have to spend more time in the office in front of the computer? Do you wish to, uh, you know, have more money on your bank account? Somebody's dying. They ask, how much did he leave? Everything. <laughs> so where do we hold on when we go? Hold on on our body? Wealth? Family? Friends? Kids? Or are there like uh, qualities like compassion, equanimity, and wisdom more important at the moment when death is coming? So to see which way you're going with your life. Eventually we have to face it. There's no way out. And that's what like this big, uh, our day philosopher Woody Allen said, I don't mind dying. I just don't want to be there. Something like that. So our mental state at the moment of death is conditioned by the way we live our life. If we have lived a life in fear and anger, our mind, our mind state at the moment of death will not be of open, compassionate, free. How we live our life, that's how, our, how we condition our mind. And that's at the moment, is it very important what mind state you have. When Gandhi got shot, his last, word, his last words were, Ram, Ram, Ram. In a Hindu, that means God, God, God. So he was present. God, God, God. And there's one story in the, in the Buddhist scriptures. There was one man, he was pretty, you know, evil guy, murder or whatever, and then, so he got caught by the kings, you know, police, so to speak, and he was just about to be beheaded. And his head was already on the block, you know, and then the guy, you know, lifting the sword and just cutting down, and as he had his head on the block, he saw over on the other side of the river, he saw a monk going on arms round. And then he remembered when he was a young boy, a monk also came on arms round, and then his mother prepared some food, and he could offer it to the monk. And as he offered it to the monk, a young boy, he was so happy. So when he, when he looked over, saw that monk, this memory came in his mind, and with it also the happiness. And at this moment, tuck, the sword came down. So at the moment, 
of his death, <coughs> he had a happy mind state. And out of this, as his teachings going, he got re or he got born again in a Deva realm. Deva realm is like a higher, higher realm above, you know, our human realm. And in that realm, he saw then, with his wisdom, he saw like that he was actually quite a evil guy. And when his good karma would finish up, he would be, be born, he would be reborn down in the lower realms. So then he practiced, you know, very hardly meditation. That's how like the teaching story goes. And that's also in uh, the Buddha said, in uh, Maranasati means the mindfulness of the death. He said, of all the footprints, <coughs> that of the elephant is the most supreme. Of all the mindfulness meditation, that about mindfulness awareness of the death is most supreme. And that's also what Milarepa said from the Tibetan tradition. He said, in brief, without being mindful of death, whatever Dharma practices you you take up will be merely superficial. Because with death, there is no way out. Death is you know, the ultimate sort of dissolution of the I, the ego. One student asked the Zen monk, what is life after death? The Zen monk said, oh, I don't know. And the student said, well, but you are a Zen monk. The Zen monk said, Zen monk said yes, but I'm not a dead Zen monk. So it's just really simple. We don't know what's going to happen, right? How it's going to happen, we don't know where, we don't know how, and we don't know when. And there's a very nice poem like the Hafiz. Hafiz. He said, death is a favor to us, but our scales have lost their balance. The impermanence of the body should give us great clarity, deepening the wonder in our senses and eyes of this mysterious existence we share and are surely just traveling through. If I were in a tavern tonight, Hafiz would call for drinks. and the master poured, I would be reminded that all I know of life and myself is that we are just a mid-air flight of golden wine between his pitcher and his cup. If I were in a tavern tonight, I would buy freely for everyone in this world, because our marriage with the cruel beauty of time and space cannot endure very long. Death is a favor to us, but our minds have lost their balance. The, the miraculous existence and impermanence of form always makes the illumined ones laugh and sing. Death is a favor to us. Okay, and one more about death. It's actually quite interesting, also in a Japanese culture, when a Zen master dies, or a samurai, before he, samurai, let's say, before he uh, commits uh, harakiri, or seppuku, as it's called, you know, taking his life, he writes a death poem. And there's a book like where, you know, over all the centuries, you know, for different, you know, samurais or uh, Japanese, you know, monks wrote a poem. But you can see death also in different ways. So there's like also coming from the Japanese culture. Monks sitting in a zendo meditating. Bandits coming, burning down the zendo. Just sitting. One famous Zen master dying. His students. Master. 
one last word, you know, last instruction or whatever before you go. And he was dying of cancer. And he said, it really hurts. So, you can see both sides. Whatever is the truth at the moment. Okay. Our big philosopher, Woody Allen. Maybe some of you know this already. It's called Living Life Backwards. In my next life, I want to live my life backwards. You start out dead and get that already out of the way. (laughs) Then you wake up in an old people's home feeling better every day. You get kicked out for being too healthy. Go collect your pension. And then when you start work, you get a gold watch and a party on your first day. You work for 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement. You party, drink, alcohol, and generally promiscuous. Then you're ready for high school. You then go to primary school. You become a kid. You play. You have no responsibilities. You become a baby until you are born. And then you spend your last nine months floating in luxurious spa-like conditions with central heating and room service on tap, larger quarters every day, and then voila, you finish off on an orgasm. I rest my case. Living life backwards. Good. So, old age, disease, and death. But also, we can look also what this body can do. So, you know, number one, first, how to get this human body. And in scripture it says, if you take all the oceans in the whole world, you know, there are many lakes here, but all the oceans. So, hmm, pretty big ocean. And on the surface of that ocean, there's a yoke swimming. You know, a yoke where the oxen put its head through in order to pull a cart on the surface. At the bottom of the ocean, there's a turtle living, a blind turtle. And every hundred years, the turtle comes up and grasps for some air. And the chance that this turtle puts its neck through that yoke is that chance to get a human body. So just sometimes reflect about it. About, you know, having a human body and not having like, you know, no legs or wings or gills or whatever. Just for a moment, sometimes if you think really like, oh, life is really not, you know, nice to me, something like that, then just reflect on it. Like having two arms, having two legs, being able to breathe in and out, have some clothes on your body, some food in your belly, a roof over your head. And you see that a big population on this planet Earth, it's not so. They don't like, you know, living in India, I know very well, they don't know where they get their next meal. They didn't know where, when they're going to sleep, you know, and at night, and where's the monsoon, you know, rain, 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 you know. Or sometimes it's getting cold, like 50 degrees, they're freezing to death because, you know, their body is not strong enough. So just for a moment, you know, when it happens, when you're really like, oh, you know, just like come back, appreciating having this human body. And then plus, also hearing of the, hearing of the teachings of the Buddha. Not hearing or listening or reading to it, but actually practicing it. 
the, the time and resources to come here, you know, to see that actually we are the creme de la creme. Just for a moment, when you have a hard day, reflect on that one. The preciousness of the human body. And see what it can do. This body can sit, can walk, lie down, reach out for things, hear, see, smell, all the senses. It, cre- it can create new beings. It can dance and praise our beloved. It is fueled by air, food and water. Runs by itself. Imagine we would be in charge of this body, of the work of this body. If we would be in charge of digestion, or if, or if we would be charge, uh, if we would charge, if we would be in charge of breathing. Uh, you turn already blue, forget you know breathing. Oh yeah. So it's actually it's it's not you are breathing. The body is breathing. Just remember that it's not everything. Like okay, you know we are breathing. You're not breathing. It's the body's breathing. If you stop breathing, you know if you voluntarily try to stop breathing, eventually you know the body takes over. You know, it starts to breathe again. It's very precious. It's a miracle. This precious human form. This is Tsongkhapa, a Tibetan master, said. This human body is more precious than the rarest gem. Cherish your body. It's yours for this time only. A thing of beauty that passes away. A thing of beauty that passes away. Or as Nietzsche said, the German philosopher, there is more wisdom in your body than in your deepest philosophy. Okay. Preciousness of this body. We can also use this body as a way of, uh, let's see why I got that. Mind, as, as in the first foundation of mindfulness, right? So we got the body, we could saw old age, disease and death. We saw the body at the preciousness of this body. And now, how can we... Uh, Right. So how can we uh, use this body, a thing of beauty that passes away, be or function as a vehicle to reach the further shore? In a monastic tradition, we would uh, contemplate the body, for instance, like the 32 parts of the body. You know, nails, teeth, bodily fluids, urine, you know, the whole thing. Or sometimes we would uh, practice the to see the four elements in the body. Like the earth element in the body is the hard stuff. You know, your uh, nails, your teeth, your bones, hair. And the fire element in the body, of course, is temperature. Fever, for instance. But also aging. Aging is a fire element. The water element in the body, obviously, is all the fluids in the body. And the air element, of course, is the breathing. Breathing in, breathing out, the movement of the body is all the air element. Sometimes we would also contemplate the body in different stages of 
decompose, decomposition, is that a word, of decaying. You know, it's sometimes quite interesting, like in India, sometimes when they cremate the body, you can see, you know, how the body, you know, eventually, you know, as it's lie on a funeral pyre, on that pile of wood, you know, first the clothes, you know, is burning, and then you see the body, you know, kind of like, first like blisters coming up, you know, and then it's just burning, you know. Interesting. And you see, you know, eventually then you go, in your meditation, you go yourself, through seeing yourself, your body, in these different states of decomposition. Mostly this was uh, taught to monks so that they lose their identification with the body or the lust for the body. Or another way like it was to uh, see the body just as a skeleton walking by. I remember practicing in in a monastery in southern Thailand. Outside that monastery there was a little coffee shop and there was a pretty popular uh, monastery so a lot of tourists coming by, sometimes on buses, so that is coffee shops. And practicing with, you know, fellow friends. So evening sometimes after the Dharma talk, we would go out having a coffee and talking Dharma and so forth. And then let's say we saw like, you know, a beautiful woman walking by and then one guy said, hey, did you see that skeleton? He went, yeah, 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 sure. So sometimes it wouldn't work so so well, you know, at, at this age. So... Another way to see that, and that's what the Buddha said in the Satipatthana Sutta, he said, he spoke about the four foundations of mindfulness, four foundations to collect the mind, so that it's not always, you know, all over the place. And the first foundation of mindfulness was mindfulness of the body, mindfulness in the body. And in one, in one Sutta he said, oh, that's not pretty small, he said, There is one thing that when cultivated and regularly practiced leads to deep spiritual intention, to peace, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to vision and knowledge, to a happy life here and now, and to the culmination of wisdom and awakening. And what is that one thing? It is mindfulness centered on the body. And elsewhere the Buddha said, if the body is not cultivated, the mind cannot be cultivated. And if the body is cultivated, the mind can be cultivated. So by being on the mind, uh, by being mindful on the, of the body, not looking at the body, but to have the felt sense of the body, to feel the body, you won't lose yourself in the outside world, nor in the inside world of, you know, lost, getting lost in ideas and fantasies and so forth. Returning to the body, it's returning to the earth. Mind is heaven. Earth is substance. Mind is empty. It means heaven is empty. It has no form, no substance. It's empty. And that's actually what your thoughts are. They're empty, right? They come and go whether you like it or not. No? And they come and go like clouds in the sky, empty. No substance. And still it has such a strong, you know, impact on our life. Mind is heaven. So returning to the earth, returning to the body, is automatically you come back to the present moment. Because the mind can go past, future, space, you know, whatever. Mind doesn't have, has no limitation. Because it's not coarse. Right? That's why, you know, the body is coarse. That's why we take the body, in this case, as a mindfulness of the body, of awareness. The body can only experience now. 
and as soon as you're lost in a thought, in a you know thought stage, whatever, you come back to the body, you come back to the present moment. Automatically, you become still. Because the energy we spend going outwards, you know, going outwards, let's say you're working on your computer all day, right? Your mind is going somewhere, wherever, you know, that cyberspace, you know, shows you. And then at the end of the day, you're really exhausted, no? Even so, you were just sitting on a chair because it means the energy is going out, whatever go. So then, by stopping, bring the awareness to the body coming back in, automatically, you know, also you bring the energy in. You're not getting lost anymore. You bring energy back into your body. That's what I said before in the meditation. Check out what's the difference being lost in thought. And the moment you wake up and come back to the present moment. How does it feel? Is there a difference energetically going out and being present? So being in the body without concepts, how things should be. Being in the body, just being. It's a sense of homecoming always for me. Homecoming. Coming back. Ah. And it's in the meditation. Mm-hmm. You wake up and you come back. Ah, okay. Feel your body sitting. And not only in the meditation, but also in your, in your, in your uh, daily life. Just being aware of the body, sitting, walking, standing, whatever you do, reaching out. And that enhances your awareness. Over, over a day. To have a sense of groundedness, which allows us to settle back and open to what is. For instance, right now, as you're sitting, as you listen, okay, your mind is going out. See what France is talking, right? So now for a moment, so you bring your energy. Okay, it's time. Okay. You bring your awareness back to your body. So just for a moment, just like, or just make actually a movement, just whatever, and just like come back. Okay, and feel your body. Feel sitting there. Right? You feel the buttocks on a cushion, feet on the ground and so forth. Alright, you inhabit, you come back. See, but hearing is still happening. Right? So if your eyes open, seeing is still happening. But you're not totally lost in it. You still have a sense of presence, being in your body. But you're not totally lost in whatever objects, you know, going out. You're still like, let's say maybe like 30% is still present in the body. And also thoughts, emotions, fears, desires, whatever, may still be there to some extent, but they won't take you over. And it's easier to stay present of the observer of your mind when you're deeply rooted in your body. And if a response is required in that situation, it will come from a deeper level of existence rather than from that, you know, mercury-like, you know, movements of your mind. Right? Sometimes we say, you know, like here in this country, you say like, down here, you say your gut feeling. And when you make a decision from down here, or let's say from your heart, it has a very different uh, energy than if it comes from the mind. And I remember traveling, you know. Okay, where should I go? Should I go to Thailand, to Bali, or whatever, or whatever, you know, in the old days? Back, forth, back, forth. And once you were certain, then it came from your heart or from your belly. And then you would go and get a ticket or whatever. 
Because that's also what they say, I think, here in this country, to be wholehearted. They said, what do you say? Wholehearted. When you make a decision, wholehearted, it means it's an existential decision, not just coming from the mind. It's not just an intellectual decision. Your whole body is in it. And when your whole body is in it, whatever you do, then the rest will come, you know, your money or whatever, or people to support whatever you are about to do. So, the practice here in meditation, mindfulness of the body, you lost, okay, moment you wake up, all right, what you do, you come back to your body. You know what's important? Very important, when you wake up, not judge yourself. Oh, I'm lost again, I can't do that, da, 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 da. What happens? The mind gets a negative imprint. That means a negative imprint, the mind wakes up and it's get like, it's not good to wake up. Know what I mean? So next time you wake up from whatever being lost, you have like, oh, great, I'm awake again. And then the mind gets sort of like a positive hit or imprint. And so naturally the mind is going back to the positive, you know, imprints in your mind. Yeah, and so that's when I, you know, understood it and practices, it was quite, you know, sort of like a mind-changing kind of like attitude. Like, wow. Even so maybe you sit half hour and maybe one time you wake up only. Okay, this half hour already, this one time, yes, great. And so the mind naturally like, wake up is great, and not wake up is like, oh, lost again, and so forth. Mind can be also used, uh, of, uh, awareness of the body, to observe difficult emotions. For instance, like, why, usually a, uh, a mind is more like mental energy. Uh, a thought, sorry, is more mental energy. A thought starts, mm, finish, next thought, mm, finish, next thought, mm, finish. When it's like, but an emotion has more a physical component to it. That's why the bo- uh, emotions are more observed in your body. Okay, so let's see, for instance, like anger is present. Actually, there's a thought, you know, with it. How can dare this person do this, or blah, blah, and so forth, okay? So what you do, first you have to recognize, wow, anger is present, okay? Anger feels like this. Then you get out of the story. Molto importante to get out of the story. And that's already half of the rent we say in Germany. You get out of the story, and you bring your awareness into your body. Where do you feel the anger? Oh, okay, here, huh? Germany, we say like, oh, I get a neck like this. And you see, like, when somebody's angry, the chi is shooting up, going in your head. You become like, you know, the veins sticking out, you know, you get a red face. How is your breath? Is it long, fine, even? Short only here. <sighs> okay. So you observe it in your body, maybe in your belly. Oh, that turns my stomach around, or so forth, right? So you observe this emotion and then see what happens. Maybe it changes. Maybe under this anger, maybe there's another emotion, maybe fear coming up under that emotion. And sometimes anger can be, if you don't get in touch, let's say with fear, then anger coming up. But it's like, would be now to go too far into it. Okay. So the body can be also helpful in working with the emotions. Fear. Okay, fear coming up. How does fear feel in the body? I don't dare to breathe, right? When there's fear... Body stops, the ear, the, the cheek gets sort of like stuck, stagnated. You don't move, you get cold feet. Right? And cold feet is usually a sign, ah, fear. 
Right? At night, when you go to bed, you have cold feet. Very difficult to fall asleep. Right? And when a person is dying, life force is leaving from your feet. The feet first getting cold. And then the rest of the body are getting cold. Life force is so fear. So make sure you have warm feet. Good. So, mindfulness of the body. Also, as a good, as a, a container for working with your emotions. Very important. So then, okay, I think uh, maybe I close. There's some more to say. We go until 9 o'clock, right? Or 9 o'clock, okay. So then very briefly, I just want to mention very briefly, uh, identification with the body. Huh? Okay, so we got that body, and usually we see, I am this body. So just one question, who, identi- who identifies more with the body, and who identifies more with the mind? Just check yourself, when you say I, is it more the body, or is it more the mind? So, identification as male or female or the same gender. Right? That's how we identify. It leads to conditional behavior patterns in all aspects of life, not only sexual. Right? Either you identify yourself as male or female. And sometimes we do that like in a Qigong. Again, in a Qigong, you go from the level of concept of arms, legs, head, front, back, and so forth. We go down to the level of actually experience. And so in Qigong, what you experience is the sensations, a pulsation, maybe a twisting, maybe a pressure, and so forth. So you go down on an energetic level. And then usually I say, are these sensations male or female? Huh. How old are these sensations? Are they 40 years or 50 years? So, identification as male or female or the same gender. And traditional cultures, for instance, like India, it's strong conditioned, male or female, very strong. For instance, like I was with a friend of mine, we went to what is called a palm leaf reader. And so, the story as it goes, Okay, I'm very skeptical about it, that for thousands of years there were some beings on this planet Earth who knew that you were born, you know, lived this life, and they rode your whole life on a palm leaf. So you go to this guy, and they kind of like look through, and ah, here is your palm leaf, and they tell you, you know, your name, your mother's name, your father's name, and all that stuff. But actually, it's not quite like that. Anyway, so I was with one friend of mine, and then, he said, like, oh, bad karma. She said, oh, my God, bad karma, what happened? Oh, very bad. He said, oh. And so she, afterwards, she was really kind of, like, very taken by it. But then we were reflecting on it. What does it mean? So, for instance, like, when she was in her 40s, she was married, and her husband died. So in Indian tradition already, you know, husband dying, you know, oh, before, you know, at this young age, oh, bad karma. And they didn't, and they didn't have any children. Children, ooh, bad. And she didn't remarry again. Oh. So in Indian culture, you know, this is quite a strong, you know, identification, you know, with this gender. So for us, you know, okay, that's just how things are. 
for lights, for instance, like in India, you won't see a bald man. They all have wigs. Or, I mean, maybe now in big cities like maybe Mumbai or whatever, maybe it's a little different. And old people, old men, you won't see with gray hair. They all have this red henna, you know, hair. So you see like old 70-year-old guy, you know, bright red hair. So, you know, actually, he has, you know, uh, red hair, actually, uh, gray hair. But it's a no-no in Indian tradition for a man to have gray hair. And that's why I was just the other day, I was in, uh, oh, two days ago, three days ago, I was in Seattle. I was teaching a retreat, and then I uh, got some dana and also in cash, and I had, like, all these small bills. So I wanted to change it, you know, like in big bills so that I don't have to carry all around. And I was with the uh, my host in Seattle. And she was a woman maybe like in her 50s, you know. And so we went to that bank because I couldn't change just, you know, the money. I I had to have someone who had a bank account on that bank. It would be very kind of like startling. Anyway, so we were there, you know, and then, okay, I want to change some money. So she had to show her driver license, her address and whatever. I said, she just to change some bills. Anyway, and so she said to that woman, oh, is this your father? I went like, what? And then I also realized the woman was from the Filipino, the, the the bank clerk. And also, like in Asian tradition, you know, you look at Asian women, you know, 60s, 70s, they all have, you know, still like black hair, right? Or whatever, hardly maybe then in the 80s, you know, the women maybe get some, you know, maybe some white hair. So there's this guy, you know, sitting there, you know, with gray hair. Automatically, okay, this is uh, the father. So anyway, so it was quite interesting, so that, okay, I had to swallow, I asked again, what did you say? I couldn't, first time I couldn't hear it. And then, you know, for the next couple of, you know, minutes, like, wow, but then I realized, okay, it's just, you know, it's just a mental state, identification, you know, with this body. And I think this is a part of the benefit of the practice, that in the beginning I might have gone on and on about, you know, how dare, you know, I'm so old, I'm looking so old, blah, blah. But now, the, so the benefit of the practice is that you catch it earlier. It's not that it totally disappears, all these mind states of identification and so forth. But you earlier you catch it when you get sort of like stuck, when you identify with this body, whatever, in, in all this mind. So to see that as a benefit of the practice. So, Identification as a male or female, same gender, or identification with the looks, strength and fitness. And particularly, you know, here in Minneapolis, everybody, you know, I look, is running, doing something very physical. Actually, the same was in Seattle. Now everybody running. And even when I came here first time, below 20 degrees, I saw people running. I said, wow, I never seen that like that. Anyway. The identification is look, strength, and fitness, and you know eventually also this will pass, right? You have to die of something. And the other day, some time ago, I saw a photo, a picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger, Mr. Universe, you know, will be. And it was somewhere like a paparazzi was shooting that photo somewhere on a beach in Hawaii. And like, you know, when you don't work, your muscles anymore, they get flaccid, is that a word? And I saw Arnold, you know, I saw happened, you know? Anyways, so, identification with looks, strength, and fitness. Or, the other way, we identify with a problematic body. 
a body which is ill, not full functioning, handicapped, and so forth. That means we identify with our diseases, and especially old people. I remember my, visiting my mother in a retirement home, and the old folks sitting there, they all talk about their diseases, what doctor they go, what medication they take, and all that stuff. So that's how they get their identification. Me, mine, I'm, you know, this body, you know, who has this in particular. Oh, no, you have to go to this doctor. He's really great, you know, and so forth. So we complain, poor me, and settle into the victim role, which gives us the chance to complain and make other people's situations or this body responsible for our misfortune. We have uh, the majority of people on our side, and you, you receive sympathy, get attention, and maybe even admiration, how courageous you are to carry that heavy load. And maybe you know some people really enjoy that victim role. You know, talking about, you know, what they're going through and their friends, oh yeah, you know, and so forth. And that's how they get, you know, the identification. And you imagine the identification with your body, the disease will be confirmed from the outside by the doctors. They love it, of course, you know, and the pharma industry, of course, even more. And that's another identification of the ego, the eye holding on, attaching to the disease, identifying with it which can even trigger diseases. And now a friend, I have a friend in Germany, he's a medical doctor, he said nowadays, you know, people, they already diagnose themselves. You know, you Google, right? So now health websites are number one, before like porno websites were number one, so now are the health websites, they take over. And so people Googling, like, and oh yeah, okay, yeah, I got it symptoms, I got it symptoms. So they come to the doctor, I'm, you know, this and this and this. So the doctor cannot actually make, make a proper di- diagnosis because already I have this disease, you know. And then the universe says, you want this disease? Okay, here you have it. Uh, something like that. So because also the eye, the identification, because the eye cannot stand alone. Right? I always have to identify with something. I, if the eye stands alone, I, 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 ah, okay. Oh, I have to close my talk. Okay, then I got an identification. Okay, it's time. I, okay, I'm thirsty, you know. Okay, then, you know, so it always has to attach to something, the I. Then it comes into existence. Uh, Like Velcro, whatever it is, right? So the I cannot really stand alone. So, at the end of your life, you can't say, I don't, you cannot say, I don't want my body to grow old. You can't expect to have no pain. That it doesn't get sick. That you have perfect sight and hearing. That you will not get senile. Be clear in mind. Always energetic. Working hard until the ripe age of 95 and then die peacefully without pain in your sleep. That's what we want. But who knows? The church says the body is a sin. Science says the body is a machine. Advertising says 
The body is business. The body says, I'm a fiesta. And a mosquito says, mmm, lekker, lekker. And to finish up with Pema Chodron, he said, it's also helpful to realize that this very body that we have, that's sitting right here now with all its aches and its pleasures, is exactly what we need to be fully human, fully awake, fully alive. Okay, so just for a moment, close your eyes. Whatever you've heard, just let it pass through. Thank you for listening. And again, if you have any questions, feel free. <clears throat> oh, no question. That's good. What do you suffer from hot beef? What's it again? What do you suffer from hot beef? Hot feet. Hot feet. Oh, when you suffer, when you suffer from hot feet. Okay. But usually, actually, hot feet is some uh, from in the terms of qigong, it's just an accumulation of qi. So qi, when you first when practicing people uh, when they practice qigong, they first sense it in their extreme uh, kind of like parts of the body, either in their hands or in their feet. So usually, there's too much energy accumulating, or the chi is unfolding. And when chi is unfolding, usually it has a quality of like fire release, you know, something, if it's like something tight and releases, it has to do with heat. So when you have like cold feet, oh, sorry, hot feet, I would say, put it in cold water. Or something, maybe, okay, I don't know, maybe when you're running, you know, marathon, naturally, you know, you will have maybe cold feet or so. But mostly it's the other way around. People have cold feet. Was it really, are you really having uh, hot feet? I mean, or... <laughs> well, so she could be like a warm water bottle for you. Something like that. Mm-hmm. 
much in Asia. I know there are some practices like in Asia, which uh, like is running by monas uh, by monks monasteries, which has to do with people who are you know addicted, like heroin addiction and so forth. So there are some places I know in Thailand where they undergo a rigorous a rigorous practice in order to you know to get rid of the addiction to heroin mostly what it is so I know that but mostly like I would say like here in this country in the United States where there's some hospice work which uh, there's some people here who, who, who are doing hospice work particularly as in the Zen tradition they're doing quite a lot of hospice work sometimes I go to prison I just was in the Folsom prison so that's also where the Buddha Dharma is brought into prison. It's quite an interesting experience. Folsom is like heavy duty, all lifers, what they call. And so these people, you know, they've, they've seen everything. You cannot, you know, you cannot, you know, make, make, make up anything. So right away, they look through, right? Or I don't know what it's the English word, but you cannot pretend you know something. They will catch you right away. But on the other hand, they're really open. Because, you know, so one guy are just like, with, you know, something happened, you know, in their life and the way they were in their youth, you know. They did something wrong, whatever. Seconds, just seconds in their life, you know, lost something, you know, lost their mind. Pulled, pulled the trigger. And now they're for the rest of their life. The one guy was 18, now he's 45. Whole life in prison. And just for one moment, the mind, you know, just like, you know, freaked or whatever. And that's it. So they're really open, you know, like, wow, what is this all about? This practice of mindfulness and all that stuff. And so it's quite uh, challenging, but also quite, you know, how do you say? I would say invigorating, but yes, it is in some ways. So that's also where the practice is getting into society. has to see it's a natural process. Very important to see that aging. It's just there's no way there's no way around that this body eventually you know gets old and will die. Whatever you know, whatever you are, if you are the president of the United States or if you're the Queen of England or whatever, so to to accept it, it's number one to accept it. To accept that this body getting old and not to identify with it. Yeah, with this body, you know, you look in the mirror, right? You see, okay, wrinkles here, more hair, oh no, no, sorry, less hair, uh, gray hair, sagging, all that stuff, right? And then, but again, but your mind, you know, doesn't age your mind, right? You cannot say like, you think like, okay, the mind, for me, like, okay, it was always like this. Okay, maybe not always, but. But something, you know, similar like that. The mind, you cannot say, okay, you can look at the body, okay, body maybe 60, 70 or whatever, right? But the mind, can you put an age on your mind? Is your mind now 50? Mind was 50, you know, it doesn't make any sense or so, right? So one thing to see the differentiation about, you know, what your body is and about the thought of your body. Right? 
Your body is just, you know, that vehicle at the moment, you know, when it dies, it's just, you know, ashes to ashes, you know, it just sort of disappears. But the mind is, so in order to cultivate more the mind, mental state than the physical state. Okay, physical state is also important, right? In a Chinese tradition, they call it dual cultivation. Dual cultivation, so you cultivate the body and the mind together. Well, sometimes, like in this tradition, in Theravada tradition, it's mostly about cultivation of the mind. And the body somehow, you know. But you have to go back, like, 2,500 years ago, the, the people were much more in their body, right? And planting rice, I know like in India, I see that when the women planting rice, but it's really fascinating. So maybe they're like 20, 30 women in one row, all colorful saris or whatever, and they all like put the rice shoots in, you know, right? So they're much more physical, you know. At the time of the Buddha, there were no, no uh, gyms, you know, to work out or something like that. They were much more, you know, they even didn't have chairs. So automatically they were sort of like, not kneeling, but, you know, squatting. Right? And now we're squatting like, wow. So that's one thing really to see that this body is just doing its stick and you're not identifying with it. So that's, I would say, the main thing. Not to identification with this body. of Qigong. One, I think in Germany you call it like quiet Qigong, where the body is still. You just move the Qi just with the power of the mind. It's because actually the movements are just a supporting of the Qi, you know, in your body. The mind, so one of the principles of Qigong is mind is leading, Qi is following. That means wherever you put the awareness, the mindfulness, that's where the Qi will go. So I know of one person back in Massachusetts where I was living up at IMS, I heard about her, and she was uh, paralyzed all the way down, couldn't move. Then she heard about Qigong, and just with the power of the mind, she would move the energy through the body. Of course, she was doing it, you know, what, eight hours a day and so forth. But eventually, you know, she could wiggle her little toe, and then she knew, okay, it works. And now she's teaching Qigong, something like so it's really all about the power of the mind. And so the, the actually the physical movement in Qigong is just a supporting supporting the movement of the qi with the mind. You can like go through here, you know, there's different you know techniques where you just sit still or you stand, just move the qi, you know, up, down, up, down. Body, mind, chi, gong. Ah, banyana. 
want to say anything? But okay, then we have a little bit of time. I want to just read one more poem. Can I? May I? The Afterlife. Just like a nice poem. While you're preparing to leave, no, no, I'm just, that's not actually. While you're preparing for sleep, brushing your teeth, or riffling through a magazine in bed, the dead of the day are setting out on their journey. They are moving off in all imaginable directions, each according to his own private belief. You go to the place you always thought you would go, the place you kept lit in an alcove of your head. Some are being shot some are being shot up a funeral of flashing colors into a zone of light white as a January sun. Others are standing naked before a forbidding judge who sits with a golden ladder on one side and a cold shoot on the other. Some have already joined the celestial core and are singing as if they have been doing this forever, while the less inventive find themselves stuck in a big air-conditioned room full of food and chorus girls. Some are approaching the apartment of the female god, a woman in her forties with short, wiry hair and glasses hanging from her neck by a string. With one eye, she regards the dead through a hole in her door. There are those who are squeezing into bodies of animals, eagles and leopards, and one trying on the skin of a monkey like a tight suit, ready to begin another life in a more simpler key. While others float off in some benign vagueness, little units of energy heading for the ultimate elsewhere. There are even a few being led to an underworld by a mythological creature with a beard and hooves. He will bring them to the mouth of a furious cave guarded over by Edith Hamilton and her three-headed dog. The rest just lie on their bags in their coffins, wishing they could return so they could learn Italian or see the pyramids or play some golf in light rain. They wish they could wake in the morning like you and stand at a window examining the winter trees, looking out for another day. We do not know. So is something... Hmm? It's a good, I don't have it. I don't know. I just, I got it from Westminster. But so sometimes also just like, you know, as you're heading now home, you know, not into the January sun, but into the Minneapolis evening, night. Sometimes it can happen, you know, before you go to sleep, as I said, because you never know you're going to wake up, right? We take that for granted, but it's not so. So just sometimes before you go to sleep, it's very important, again, somehow to have a positive mind state, right? So before you go to sleep, maybe not so good to uh, watch Game of Thrones or something like that. Or Breaking Bad or who knows what. So really to have sort of like a happier, balanced mind state. And sometimes you reflect on the day 
And some days are where really nothing really worked out very well. You know, that can happen these days. So then just reflect on two things which went well on that day. Two things which went well. So maybe, you know, you can come up with two things which, which went quite okay on that day. But some days, nothing went well on that day. Happened. You know, we call that a dark night of the soul where already from the morning you get up, you know, the whole day is like one after the other. You come home and, wow, what a day. So then, before you go to bed, reflect on two things which did not happen on that day. <laughs> so, didn't break my arm, great. The thing is that you have sort of like a you know, really a happy mindset before you go to bed. Just check that out. Okay. So, let's call it a day. A night. So just for a moment, just, you know, sitting for a moment and just breathing staccato. And let it all go. One more. And a third time. Okay. So again, thank you for that evening. We could spend together and have a good, have a good, uh, drive home. And again, the breathing staccato, okay, on a physical level, take, take uh, that one home. And it's like something like when the energy gets, you know, stuck somewhere, you know, kind of like, let's say you run a red light and you see the blue and the red light behind you and you know, oh, it's going to be expensive. And before the officer comes and knocks on your window, Release and then calm down. Okay. Thank you. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org.